We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am Rich Lamello, and my guest today has a plaque that hangs in Cooperstown, New York. That plaque reads, he was determined, he was durable, and he was fun-loving. He baffled big league batters with a cruel and knee-buckling breaking ball. He also happened to win two World Series. Ladies and gentlemen, Bert Blylevin. Bert, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Oh, thank you. I, uh, Rich, I think they forgot to put the word stubborn in there. I was born <laughs> in Holland, so I am a stubborn Dutchman. <laughs> you come but, by it naturally. Rich, I'm very honored that, uh, you know, I was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2011. It was quite an honor for me and my family. Uh, my dad had passed away of Parkinson's, so he wasn't there, but my mother was there. And, uh, you know, for someone that was born in Holland, that came through Canada into the United States, very, very proud to be the first Dutchman to uh, be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's funny. Yeah. Obviously, your nickname's the Dutchman. And, and you know, much has been made over the years of the fact that you were from. I, I've got other nicknames, too, Rich, if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure we'll get to those. <laughs> but But there can't be too many guys who've not only made it to the majors who are from the Netherlands, but also who came through Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is where you spent five years. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. From Holland. My, my father wanted to come to the United States and my older brother, older sister, and myself, uh, we went with my mom and dad uh, to Saskatoon, Regina, Melville area. Uh, my dad uh, worked there on a farm, uh, the berries up in, uh, up in Saskatoon. That was her last name. And uh, my dad went ahead to the United States uh, finally to get our uh, cards, our, our visas and passports so we could come to the United States. And we did back in 1957. Got it. Okay. So you, you come to the States, you settle basically down in Southern California, kind of outside of Anaheim, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Area. And your father even though he's from the Netherlands, your father becomes a pretty big baseball player, right? Watching the Dodgers and listening to Vin Scully. 
Yeah, he was a big fan. He became a big fan of, you know, the Angels were not there yet. And they came to Anaheim in 1966. So the only baseball team, I think, and my dad, you know, when we first came to the United States, he took me to soccer games. Of course, Holland, you know, and soccer is a big, big sport. They're football. Uh, and I would go to I would go to games with my dad. Uh, and then he followed the Dodgers. He loved Frank Howard. He loved listening to Vince Scully and Jerry Doggett describe baseball games. And of course, a lot of those games were not on TV. So I, I kind of wanted to, you know, I'd sit there and listen to the games with my dad. And uh, that's really how we became baseball fans through my dad and listening to uh, Vin and Jerry describe the LA Dodgers. Sure. And did he, did, just out of curiosity, did he pick the game up pretty quickly, you know, the nuances, or was it just he just kind of loved, you know, the, the sport of it? I think through his brother, my uncle Cor, that's kind of how they went. I remember I went one time to Dodger Stadium with my dad. And right. uh, I remember, right, we were sitting way up in the nosebleed area. That's about all we could afford with my uh, dad and my uncle and, and my cousin. And it was uh, Sandy Koufax against Juan Marichal, the Giants. One great Juan Marichal, and I remember Koufax beat him one to nothing. Wow. And I remembered looking out, and I was kind of to the right side of the of the left field foul pole, and I was looking down at Dodger Stadium at at that mound, how high it was. And I thought, you know what? I didn't know. I, I said that would be great to play baseball. I didn't start playing baseball until I was about nine or ten years old. Uh, you know, I had a paper out in the morning. Um, when we came from Paramount, California to Garden Grove, California, I was in the third grade and all my friends that I kind of hung out with, they played Little League. So even though I, I had a paper out, I had to show my mother that I could throw the paper on the porch and, or on the roof to show her I had a good arm and they finally let me play. You know, to, to play the Little League, you had to have some money to buy a glove, you had to have shoes and all that stuff. Sure. And my, my parents, you know, they, we had seven of us in the family, so there wasn't a lot of money. But uh, my mother even did an interview with Fox and basically said, you know, he showed me that he could throw the paper on top of the roof. He had a good arm, so we signed him up for Little League. And I started <laughs> off as a catcher because, uh, you know, he had the equipment. You had the shin guards and the chest protector and the glove. And uh, my coach, I remember, Mr. Price was a fireman that, volunteered his time to coach us in Little League. He, I guess he started noticing I was throwing a ball back harder to, you know, the pitcher than he was throwing to me. And he said, you ever want to pitch? I said, sure, I'll try it. Right. And I, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with that baseball. And, you know, it was just something that uh, I just wanted to do all, all the time. I threw against the wall. I played many sports in high school, ran cross country, played football one year, played four years of basketball. But when I got that baseball in my hand, I was always playing baseball, always. And for and for for the listener out there, you have to go on YouTube and pull up Bert's uh, Hall of Fame induction speech. The entire time he's holding a baseball, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, "That's classic. It's the same baseball, Rich. <laughs> Is that right? It's, it's just classic. <laughs> and you don't even mention it. You're just holding it in the yeah. speech. It's really don't funny. leave home without it." <laughs> that's great it's like, i guess it's crutches go that's a good one right um so you so you 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 graduate from high school you're drafted in the third round by the twins and you go straight to minor leagues with them you're not there long and you get called up as a 19 year old to the big club 
Well, you know, I had an older brother that was in the Air Force. It was during the Vietnam War time. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of scholarships. I had a scholarship to Brigham Young University to Chapman University in Southern California. Of course, BYU is up in Pro Provo, uh, Utah. Uh, I wanted to play. Uh, I remember when uh, I had just pitched in a North-South All-Star game uh, after I got drafted by the Twins in the third round. So Jesse Flores and Dick Winsick were two scouts that kind of followed me. And they came to my house after I pitched three innings. I struck out eight of the nine batters I faced in the All-Star game. I played left field. I threw out a guy at home plate, uh, you know, to my catcher, Tom Hirely. And uh, we ended up winning the ball game. But they came to my house and I remember they offered me $5,000 plus schooling being a third round draft pick. And my dad, you know, being Dutch, he looked at uh, Dick Winsack and Jesse Flores and he said, schooling. He said, God damn it. We barely got him out of high school. So <laughs> he said, you know, you better come back with another offer. And they came back the next night and they offered me 15,000. Now, my dad raised seven kids. You know, he's a bumper straightener. He, he cut lawns. He did everything he could to su support his family. Maybe, maybe seven or $8,000. So, you know, through this signing, uh, I basically, you know, doubled what he made in, in a year. So, you know, I took the money. I, I, I gave half the money to my mom and dad. And then I ended up buying a car with the, with the remainder. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was great memories back then that, uh, you know, we helped support our family as, and, and that's kind of what we did back then. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and, and you get called up as 19 year old, which is just, you know, obviously extraordinarily young and you walk into a locker room with some, some big names, uh, Harmon Killebrew, Tony Oliva, Jim Perry was in the process of winning the Cy Young that year. Um, tell me about that experience. Rich, I think what helped me is when I signed out of high school, I went to Melbourne, Florida, and being from Southern California, going to Melbourne, Florida in July, uh, we didn't have the terminal to where you walk through a terminal, you walked off the plane. And I remember that humidity just stuck to my little chest. And I thought, what did I get into? And of course, uh, the, the barracks, army barracks that, that we stayed in were no more than half a mile from the ballpark or from the airport. Uh, you know, my, myself and Jim Hughes, many, I met Jim Hughes on the plane, former pitcher for the twins, like Hugo, still a great friend today, but uh, we decided to room together and it was a, a army barracks that had no, no AC. Now I'm just 18 years old, just turned 18 years old. And now we're sleeping in hot weather. It's sticky. We go down for breakfast in the morning and it was terrible. I mean, we're thinking, you know, what did we get ourselves into? So I went to uh, Sarasota, Florida, was rookie league at that time. And I uh, was only there a month. I was two and two in uh, some starts. Uh, they called me up to single A. Uh, I was five and oh in single A. And then I asked, they asked if whoever wanted to play in structural ball, which was, no, uh, I believe, October, November in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I raised my hand. I want to go. I, I don't want to go back home and have to find a job to pump gas or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know if I could make it or not. You know, if I didn't, I figured I'd come back to Southern California, 
maybe go to a junior college, maybe enlist in the service like my older brother did. Maybe I always wanted to be a policeman or a fireman at that time. I wanted to, you know, be that type of guy. Uh, and lo and behold, I went instructional league. We won the whole thing. I went eight. No, I pitched the final game in that uh, instructional league championship against Ed Farmer, the former announcer. And, and I know he's passed away since he's a great, great man, but I beat him one to nothing. And that kind of my first year in ball, I was 15 and two combined. And that invited me to spring training. That's what the twins, they invited me as a non-roster player. So the men, names that you mentioned before I got called up, I had the opportunity to go to spring training with them as an 18 year old. Right. So I got to watch Jim Perry and Jim Cott, what they did, you know, Dave Boswell, Louis Tion. Those were the four starters back in 1970. Yeah. There was no room for me. I was only 18 years old. But Bill Rigney, I guess they said he fell in love with me when I threw batting practice or played in a ball game. I didn't pitch in that many games, but I was sent down to AAA. So I missed AA completely. <laughs> and uh, Ralph Rowe was my manager. And I had just pitched a game. Uh, against uh, Wichita, I think it was the, they were the Oakland A's, and it was like 11, 12 innings. I beat them one to nothing. I struck out like 17. Wow. And just so at that time in late May, uh, Louis Tiant and Dave Boswell both got hurt. So okay. they were looking for someone to be the third or fourth starter. They were trying to make a trade. And uh, Eric Soderholm and I had just come back from the movie in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Bob Gebhardt was in the uh, in the lobby, he was kind of our, our leader as far as the pitching staff. He was a pitcher for us for the Evansville triplets. He uh, basically said, hey, Ralph Rowe wants to see you upstairs. And I thought, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? You know, our game was rained out. We went to a movie. So I went up there and Ralph Rowe showed me a telegram basically saying that uh, welcome to the twins. Ralph said, uh, you know, congratulations to me. I said, I don't want to see you back. Uh, hopefully I can come up there one year and, and be a coach, which he did, but I never went back. And uh, I joined the Twins in late May. Uh, my first start was June, I believe, uh, June 6th, 1970. I was nervous as heck. Uh, we didn't have the cell phones back then, so you couldn't really talk to your parents other than through the hotel phone. Sure. And I ended up winning that ballgame two to one. Uh, first guy I ever faced, Lee May, hit a home run off me. And I thought, oh, geez, what did I get myself into? <laughs> there's a guy in the, in the lineup, Frank Howard, that my dad idolized as a Dodger fan growing up. And uh, uh, after, after the game, after I won, my dad was only concerned about how Frank Howard, Howard did against me. And I told him, I said, Dad, I said, I said, uh, you 0 for 3, and I struck him out once. My dad hung up on me. <laughs> he wanted Frank Howard to take me deep. So it was kind of cool. It was, it was a great first game. And, uh, you know, it, 23 years later, it was time to go do something else. <laughs> uh, and, and then that you did for the next 25 years, right? Announcing, basically. But, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. You mentioned Louis Tion. A lot of people forget that between Cleveland and Boston, he pitched for the Twins for a year. Now, he obviously was hurt when you were called up, but did you, did you, you know, kind of, were you around him much? Oh, what a great guy. You know, he's a guy that has Hall of Fame numbers and, you know, his time hopefully will come as Tony Oliva and Jim Cott, Tommy yeah. John. There's yeah. a lot of guys looking in that hopefully will get there one day. But, uh, you know what, it, it, 
I remember Louis Tion, he would, and we only had one whirlpool back then. Now they have pools in the clubhouse, you know, where you can <laughs> swim and everything. Uh, we had one big whirlpool and Louis would be sitting in, in, in the whirlpool smoking his cigar. And he, every time I walked by, I didn't want to go in the club into the training room much. That's kind of, you stay away from that. But he'd come by and he'd say, you, Moyen, you took my job. You know, meaning, hey, ugly, you took my job, you know. But what a character, what a great guy he was. And, you know, sad to say that through injuries and stuff like that, players get an opportunity to come up. And that was my opportunity. Sure, absolutely. Um, and that was a good team. I mean, it was I mean, not only, you know, the stars that we just mentioned, but you go to the playoffs, you lose to Baltimore, who ultimately win the World Series. Um and uh, and you're with Minnesota for the next, you know, kind of four or five years through 1975. Right. Mm -hmm. And that team, you know, Rod Carew is coming into his own and starting to win the batting title basically every year. Still a couple more years of Harmon Killebrew, Oliva with big numbers every year. And then some of the young guys start coming in, Danny Ford, Lyman Bostock, Larry Heisel. But the team just can't replicate what it did in 1970 and, and the year before that and make the playoffs. Um, and the Griffiths owned the, the team at the time, known to be penny pinchers. Um, and you know, pretty, <laughs> is that I'm glad you said that. Yeah, euphemism of the year. Um, and, and one by one, some of the players start getting, you know, kind of traded or free agency starts to kick in. Tell me about that period. Well, I think the sad part is, and I idolize the late Harmon Killerbrew. You know what? I, I had the opportunity to play with Willie Stargell, Harmon Killebrew, two men that to me were some of the not only classiest guys in uniform, uh, leaders in the clubhouse, but just great guys outside of the game. And I think what really hit me uh, is when Harmon had to go to Kansas City to continue his career because Mr. Griffith and the Twins organization felt that Harmon's career was over with. And Harmon didn't want to leave. He wanted to play one more year. And he ended up his career, you know, in Kansas City. Yep. Yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, then free agency came into play in 1975, the Kirk Flood um, case. And then also uh, with uh, Dave McNally and uh, Andy Messersmith um, testing the free agent market. In sure. 1976, uh, I remember I, I think I was making $66,000 in 1975, and uh, Calvin did not give me a raise. I won 15 games, I think, that year, and, you know, led to club and innings pitched and strikeouts and all that stuff. But uh, he, I, he didn't give me a raise, so I sent my contract back, and, he, you know, he gave me basically to get to spring training, he gave me a 20% cut. So instead of making 66, now in 1976 or in 75, I made 66, 76, I'm making only 52, which is still good money. Don't get me wrong, but it's a 20% cut. So I was going to test the market. I was going to be a free agent uh, along with my roommate, Danny Thompson. So sure. Danny and I, and I believe it was late June, ended up getting traded to the Texas Rangers together for uh, three or four or five players, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, you move on. And uh, I ended up signing a, a contract, a three-year contract with uh, with the Texas Rangers that, that darn near tripled what Calvin Griffith was paying me in 75. So, you know, the, the market called 
four at that time, free agency. I was never a free agent throughout my career. But if you're going to give me long-term contracts, I don't know when this thing was going to blow. Right. You know, as far as you don't know how long your arm's going to last. I didn't realize it was going to last, you know, 22 years plus. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you, so you show up in Texas and you've, you've, in your early years in Minnesota, you're pitching with Jim Perry. You show up in Texas and Gaylord Perry's there. How was, how was pitching with uh, both ends of the Perry brothers? They're like night and day. Jim was a gentleman, you know, he always had something. He was a wheeler dealer. Gaylord was a mule. I mean, I love Gaylord, you know, and I know his health is bad right now and he's not doing well, but I tell you what, I don't think I played with a guy that was more competitive between the lines than Gaylord Perry. He, he taught me so much. He, when I went over there, he wanted to learn my curveball. Okay. And I said, okay, Gaylord, we'll do it between starts. We'll, you know, we pitched every fourth day. I'll show you the rotation on my curveball, but you have to show me your spitter. So it's first it's him. He looks, picks up the breaking ball pretty good. He gets good rotation on that, on that breaking ball. And now it's my turn. Like my next, you know, after two days after my next start, he lubes me up with Vaseline. You know, my neck is like this. And usually on the sideline, you're throwing maybe between starts five, 10 minutes just to get some mound time. And, but I, I swear when he, put that Vaseline on there. And I put that ball like this with no grip and it popped out of there. That ball went, it just disappeared. Right. That's like a kid at a candy store. <laughs> I just, you know, but Gaylord did all this, you know, he did, he took forever to pitch and that wasn't my, in my repertoire at all. So it, that was fun that time, but I never carried into the game. I couldn't. You know, you're going to be shiny and all this stuff on your neck. Gaylord was a mule. I tell you what, I loved him. He he was, to me, the one of the best competitors I ever played with. All he needed was a little bit on his thumb right there. And then when he needed it, he'd just do that and have it there to where it meets that sinker. But he also had a very good split finger. Okay. And a lot of times he threw that and everybody thought it was a spitter because it, it you know, as you see splitters today that really break down. And that's what Gaylord had. Right. Actually, speaking of breaking down, I, <laughs> I saw a great quote. Um, you were talking about, obviously you're, 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 you're just so well known for your curveball, And I, I can't remember if it was an interview where somebody asked you the best curveball you ever pitched, but you were talking about playing against a young Terry Kennedy who you know, ultimately had a lengthy career as a catcher in the majors, but he might've been a rookie that year and you threw the perfect curveball, and it curved so hard that, well, describe it. I don't, I don't want to say you basically, he was catching in St. Louis and I guess maybe they had told him, watch out for his curveball. And the first time he came up and I, I'm with the Pittsburgh pirates and I threw a couple fastballs that he fouled off and now I'm ahead. Oh, two. And I drop a good hammer on him and he swung straight down. Like he's like, he's got an ax. He went straight down and thank goodness it was strike three as a third out of the inning. So I ran off the field on my dugout and I turn around and my guys are laughing, you know, at, at Terry swing. I did not laugh. Believe me, I would never laugh at a hitter, you know, that was trying to make his living at hitting a baseball. One of the hardest things to do. But then as I put my jacket on, I turned around and I saw the St. Louis Cardinal 
dugout too, and they're just rolling. They were <laughs> laughing, <laughs> and I, I I had to put my glove over my mouth and sit down and stay out of the picture, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that that was a pretty good curveball. That, that's funny. That's great. Um, so so you're in Texas. Uh, I have to ask uh, your your manager for most of the time that you were in Texas was Frank Lucchese. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second baseman on the team was Lenny Randall. And he was in a battle with Bump Wills, Maury Wills' son, for the position. Um, and he didn't feel like he was getting a fair shake. And he took a couple of swings at Frank Lucchese. I'm just curious if you want to you know, kind of tell me about that. Well, it was 1977 in spring training. Uh, Lenny Randall, I had an apartment, a, com- a condo in Texas. Lenny had and also a condo right next to me. So sometimes we'd drive into the ballpark together and Lenny was a great guy, a great competitor. And uh, he felt in 1977, he wasn't getting a fair shake uh, with the Texas organization and manager Frank Lucchese on getting to be the second baseman of the future for the, and they felt Bump Wills was gonna uh, be the second baseman. So Lenny, you know, got upset and they had a, altercation that's sad to say that uh, Lenny ended up you know going somewhere else I I did talk to Lenny prior to the situation that happened Um, I had to go to court to testify what Lenny told me and what I heard Um, and hopefully you know I don't know the result hopefully it was all resolved but uh, Lenny Randall's a great guy he was a great competitor and uh, you know just a sad situation sometimes that that stuff happens yeah. Yeah. It was a tough one. He, he ultimately gets suspended by the team and then traded and Lucchese loses his job about a month or two later. It's just not, not a great outcome for him. When, when I think of Lenny Randall, I think of that ball that's going down the third baseline in Seattle and he gets on his hands and knees and tries to blow it foul. <laughs> that was Lenny Randall. <laughs> I got it. He had a lot of fun game playing the game, but as a switch hitting second baseman, he had a very nice career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you pitch a no hitter in, I think it was your last start in Texas. Yeah, I was on a disabled list, Rich. Uh, you know, I had re-aggravated a groin injury in early September. So the Rangers put me on a disabled list. And when they came to play the angels, that's where I was rehabbing. I was living in Southern California. My leg felt better. I got an injection in the area. It started to feel better. And I told Billy Hunter, the manager at the time, I'd like to maybe pitch again you know, finish the season, at least get back on that mound. And he gave me that opportunity. And lo and behold, I ended up pitching a no hitter. I uh, had not pitched like in four weeks. So I guess the best way to use me over my career is let me sit out a month, pitch me and I'll pitch a no hitter. And then let me sit out another month. It'd but, be a good uh, strategy. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but you know what? I re-aggravated again in the eighth inning. Right. And I could only go out. I went out for the ninth. I remember Billy Hunter came out and he said, you okay? And I said, I, I have a no hitter going like, you know, <laughs> leave me alone. I'm okay. Get out of my way. <laughs> I went out for the ninth and uh, I threw nothing but curveballs because I could shorten my stride and still get on top of the ball. And that's ended up, I ended up pitching a no hitter. I struck out, I think, Fab Bosley for the last out. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was, then, you, then that was my last game as a Texas Ranger before I got traded that winter to the uh, Pirates. Yeah, so that's and so that's an interesting one. So you're part of a four-way trade, which is almost impossible to kind of you know triangulate it all or quadrangle it all, I guess. Um, but ultimately, you and John Milner 
end up in Pittsburgh and for the 1978 season. And clearly something's building there. And, and, you know, the next year, 1979 is famously the, we are family world series championship team. Um, and it was interesting. So you and Milner come in in 78, they pick up Bill Madlock and Tim Foley in 79 Obviously, you mentioned Willie Stargell earlier. Dave Parker's a star. That team really came together at just the right time. It's funny how, you know, you look at those championship seasons that I was fortunate to be on two of them, one in Pittsburgh, one in Minnesota in 87. But, you know, that ball club had Ed Ott, Steve Nikosha, Benny Sangay behind the plate. They had Willie Stargell, John Milner, Bill Robinson sometime would play first. He'd play Mike Eastler was there. These are all backup guys, some of them. Yeah. Uh, we had Bill Garner at second base. Dale Barra, Yogi's son, was a utility infielder. We had Tim Foley, as you mentioned, at short. Bill Matlock at third. Out in left field was Lee Lacey. Uh, Bill Robinson, again, played a lot out there. Omar Marino, that could catch anything that was hit to his left or right. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable speed. And then, of course, Dave Parker, you know, out in uh, right field. What, a, what an animal he was. But uh, we had a very good pitching staff led by Candelaria, myself, Jim Bibby, Bruce Keeson, Jim Rooker, Donnie Robinson. I mean, what a name, six guys right there. You know, and then you had Kent Tacovi, Grant Jackson, Enrique Romo out in the bullpen. We were supposed to win, and we did. We, we, we kind of, you know, we were down three games to one to Baltimore in the World Series. But, uh, you know, we knew we needed somebody to jump on somebody's back and and our captain, Willie Stargell, we jumped on his back and he took us to the promised land. Yeah. We are family. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing. In, in looking back at it, I think I got this right. In games one through five, Chuck Tanner started five different pitchers. It, it, I think it was Keyson, then I think it was you in game two. And mm -hmm. in there was Candelaria and... Um, was it Bibby? Bibby? And yeah. yeah, and Rooker. And I think if, tell me if I've got this right, game five, you're down three to one. So obviously you're in must win territory now. And he decides I'm just going to ride Rooker as far as I can. And then Blylevin as far as I can just get the win. Yeah. And that's a day that uh, Chuck Tanner lost his mother too. So the emotions right. were high, you know, and, and we were down three games to one. And, you know, I always take my hat off to Jim Rooker because he was facing Mike Flanagan who pitched five shutout innings. And we were down one to nothing. And in the sixth inning or bottom of the fifth inning after uh, he ended up uh, pinch hitting for Jim Rooker and everybody was available. And it just so happened. I had, I got the call and I went in for the sixth inning and ended up pitching four shutout innings. And then our offense came alive. We ended up winning, I believe seven to one. Yep. Uh, but Rooker pitched great, you know, to allow us to kept us in the game. And then I came in and all of a sudden the offense got me some runs and we ended up winning, went back to Baltimore uh, and won game six and seven there. Thanks to Willie Stargell and his strength. Yeah, it was amazing. I think almost everybody who we've just talked about, uh, Moreno, Stargell, Madlock, Foley, uh, Parker, Garner, well Garner. Over 300, a couple of them hit over 400. I mean, Garner. Yes. Yeah. I mean, some of those batting averages were just insane. Um and uh, yeah, and and all the starters you just rattled off, Don Robinson, who was a, you know a very good young pitcher at the time, wasn't even one of the five who got a start. He came yeah. in and pitched, but um, 
and I think he even picked up a win in one of the games. But yeah, just a, I mean, what an amazing team! And it must have been just a lot of fun. I mean, that team looked like they were having fun. You know, we we had a lot of Chuck Lattice play. You know, there's a lot of veterans. You, everybody you named, you know, basically other than maybe Donnie Robinson, he was kind of still coming up through the system. A lot of those guys, you know, we have been around the block a little bit, so we knew how to create a hopefully a, a positive attitude in the clubhouse. Uh, it was funny that in those years, if we lost a close ball game, Willie Stargell or Dave Parker would go over there to the radio and they'd turn up the dial. And it just so happened there's, I believe, Willie Stargell heard a song playing We Are Family by Sister Sledge. And he said, that's our new theme song. Yeah. And that started playing, you know, even though we won our, maybe we lost a close ball game, but we always said, okay, it's behind us. Okay. Let's move forward. We're going to win tomorrow. We're going to want to start a winning streak tomorrow. And that yeah. was the that was the attitude of Chuck Tanner and his coaching staff. Just kind of we all gelled together as a ball club. And that's how you win. That's how the Houston Astros and you know the right now, you know, you got the World Series going on, the Atlanta Braves. They're playing well as a ball club to get to where they're at. Right. Yeah. And that that was an amazing team, also, in that. Halfway through the season, <clears throat> I was just kind of looking at some of the old numbers. You guys are basically a 500 team, game or two above 500. Each of the last three months of that year, you went basically 20 and 10, which is just extraordinary. 20 and 10, 20 and 10, 20 and 10. Maybe it was 21 and 9 or 20 and 11. But, you know, basically you were going coming in like 10 games over 500 each of the last three months. I mean, that's the you know perfect momentum to take you into the postseason. Well, I think when you get into postseason, what comes down to you need good starting pitching. You need guys to keep you in the ball game. Of course, the biggest thing is defense. You know, I already saw in yesterday's ball game. You know that, that the Braves made a couple defensive mistakes. Yep. And you can't let that happen. You can't give a club, a good club like Houston, more than three outs an inning. Or the Houston Astros can't do the same for the Braves. So yeah. it comes down to that, and then timely hitting. You know, don't miss that pitch that uh, Willie hit in Game Six and Seven for the home run. Don't miss it. He didn't miss it. He, like I said, I call it the promised land. That's kind of what, you know, when, when you sign a professional contract, everybody's dream is to get to the World Series and hopefully win and wear that World Series ring with a lot of pride. And I was able to do that twice, thanks to 24 other guys and great coaching staff and people in the organizations. They all led you to, to that final out that uh, got you that World Series trophy. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, obviously, we talked about Chuck Tanner. You mentioned the coaching staff. Harvey Haddix was on that staff, right? Was he the pitching coach at the time? Yes, executive uh, farmer, Harvey Haddix. Yeah, he had a farm. He never worked it. He just, you call him the executive farmer. He was a great guy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, uh, who was it? I, I think I saw that Jim Palmer. I guess their, Jim Palmer was, you know, kind of a 20-year-old rookie when Haddix was at the very end of his career. But he said he had a big influence on his career. Well, you know what, pitching coaches, what they want to do is just get you to be the best you can be and utilize the stuff that you have, not what somebody else has. Sure. So you have to stay within yourself. Yeah. And then uh, a year or two later, you you go to Cleveland where you pitched for, you know, basically four or five years. I happened to, for the listener, I happened to have, as, as a kid growing up, I lived in Minnesota, then Cleveland, then back to Minnesota. So uh, I was kind of following Burt's path uh, with, with the exception <laughs> of Texas and Pittsburgh. Um, 
but I was there for those for those Cleveland years, and those were tough years. I mean, those were frustrating years. But there was one year in particular where you were 12 games over 500. I think 19 and seven on a team that was 12 games under 500. You know, mathematically that becomes difficult to do. Um, so I'm sure there was a lot of frustration there. But you'd like to be on a winning team year in and year out. But I mentioned 23 years of playing baseball. I was on two World Series teams. Only got the postseason three times. So you know what? You're going to have years that it wasn't frustrating as long as you gave it all you have. Right. And I honestly say in Cleveland, under Richie Garcia, under all the other managers we had, Pat Corrales and guys like that, we looked at every ball game where we're hoping going to win. Maybe we didn't have the talent that the other teams did. But sure. it was always fun to come to the ballpark with Len Barker and Rick Sutcliffe. And we had a lot of fun, even though, you know, maybe we weren't at the top of the uh, of the totem pole. We were kind of toward the bottom, but we played the game hard. And I think anybody who was on that ball club in Cleveland, I was there from what, 1981 to 85 before I got traded back to Minnesota. Yeah. Had a good time. We had a good time. You'd like to win every ball game, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. Right. And speaking of Lenny Barker, you were there for uh, perfect game, which at the time was there had only been like nine or eleven or some you know some ridiculously small number. Um, I remember that night very well on Channel Forty Three WUAB in Cleveland, and a buddy of mine called and said, "You know, it's like the seventh inning. Barker's pitching a perfect game, and you scrambled to the TV. It was a Friday night. It was like cold and raw. Um, what was that like to watch? It was unbelievable. It was a cold night. We didn't have a lot of people there in Cleveland." You know, probably 20,000 people will say that they were there, but I think we only had maybe about three or 4,000. But I remember watching that ball game against the Toronto Blue Jays, and his fastball was just dipping. His breaking ball was dipping, and he was just going through the lineup like it was a knife through soft butter. You know, it was unbelievable. And when Rick Manning caught that last fly ball, it was, I mean, it was, you know, it's like when in the seventh game of the World Series, you know, right. when you see something like that as a player and you get your teammate being able to do what Len Barker did, it was unbelievable. What a great ball game to be part of just to watch. Yeah, yeah. And, and also on that team, uh, you know, speaking of some of the characters in Cleveland, uh, the 1980 Rookie of the Year, obviously you were, got, you, he, you, Joe Sharp, one year later, but you Joe, Joe Charbonneau. <laughs> Super Joe Charbonneau. Now he he was he stuck around for another couple of years. What was what was playing with him like? Well, you know what, he was a great guy. He, he had so much power, but uh, I think you know maybe this maybe the you know accolades that he got. You know, being able to open a beer bottle and through his eyelids and all that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, he, I, I think he had a couple soft spots that pitchers found out that right. you know we got to pitch him that way. And then he had some injuries too that kind of shortened his career, but. I'll tell you what, 1980, he had a great year. I wish I was part of that ball club at that time. I would have liked his run support. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a lot of fun, and, and it is funny you mentioned that. I remember being, you know, a bunch of us you know, would be sitting around reading the Cleveland Plain Dealer because there was no ESPN or anything. And, you know, you're reading these articles about him opening bottles with his eyelid, and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> it's just, you know, just a very entertaining guy who produced, and then, you know, just unfortunately just wasn't. And so he's still, he's still in the Cleveland area, and I understand that still does a lot of uh, nice things for the Cleveland Indians as far as uh, helping raise money and a lot of charitable stuff. So yeah. my hat's off to Joe. 
Absolutely. Yeah, he, he was one of those guys, man. The fans loved him. For, yeah. Even though he really was only around for a couple of years, the fans loved him. Yes, um, they did. And young, young Rick Sutcliffe was coming up uh, at the time. Uh, what, was, uh, what was pitching with Rick like? Well, Sut was, uh, ended up being my roommate for a little bit, uh, which we've kind of parted ways. I have nothing to do with him now. But uh, no, he, you know, his big old head, geez, unbelievable. <laughs> but uh, no, he came over from the Dodger organization and, you know, he was just kind of developing into the pitcher he became with the Cubs. Right. I believe it was 1984 that he was traded to the Cubs and was what, 16 and one, and they got the postseason. But uh, Sut had tremendous stuff. He's still a good friend today. Uh, yeah. You know, we, go back and forth. We, we love to kid each other. And, uh, it's just a way that, uh, sometimes you find a, a teammate like Frank Viola, you know, that I pitched with in Minnesota, Tom Bernanski, Keith Atherton, you stay in contact with these guys, uh, in a kidding way, a lot of times, but it's just, you know, you find a lot of friends in the game and Rick Sutcliffe is one of those. Yeah. I got a kick out of the fact that those, those Cleveland Indian teams of the early eighties, a good number of you guys became the voice of different teams that Sutcliffe and you and Rick Dwayne Manning. Piper, Rick Manning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, some, it's, you know, it's like 20% of the roster became the voice of, you know, yeah, a team. We, we didn't play together as a team very well, but we had really good voices. <laughs> exactly. Great, great conversationalists. A lot of fun <laughs> at the bar afterwards. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, and so then, so then back to Minnesota. Uh, which you had left in 75 and now you're going back. Um, and you're, I mean, so, and by then I personally was also back in Minnesota and something was brewing there. Also, you had young guys like Viola, who you just mentioned, Kent Herbeck, Kirby Puckett, Gagne, Brunanski was traded for <clears throat> um, uh, Gary Gaetti, Tim Laudner, you know, you, you, you started to kind of feel something come together. And in 1984, they made a little bit of a run into the, you know, down to the final week of the season. And then you came in the next year uh, in 1985. What was it like coming back to Minnesota? Well, you know what? I left in 1976. Danny Thompson and I got traded to the Texas Rangers in 76. And I kind of left with a sour taste in my mouth only because of the way that the contract situation was handled before I got traded to Texas. So, but I, as you mentioned, the names of those young players, to me, I was, what, 36, 37 years old at the time. Uh, I was looking forward to going back to Minnesota because that's kind of, it's a team that I was signed with, that it's a team I came up with. So to go back was kind of a homecoming for me uh, to be part of, you know, a pitching staff that they needed pitching because of the offense with the pucket came up in 1984 but prior to that, you had Herbeck and Gaetti, Bernanski, Laudner. They made a trade for Greg Gagne. Steve Lombardozzi came over. Uh, things were clicking in Minnesota as far as offensively. They needed pitching help. And right. I credit the organization after the 86 season. Uh, I was a player rep for the Twins in 1986. Uh, just so happened to be Fan Appreciation Day. And at the end of the game, I went nine innings. So you pretty pumped up about winning the ball game. And we were all came back on the field and we're supposed to give our uniform away. We're supposed to give a speech. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I said at that time, if the twins go out and add a couple players to this ball club, I guarantee you we're going to win the world series next year. I bet you that. 
And, you know, it, I felt it. Yeah. I felt it. And twins did. They went out and got Jeff Reardon. They got Al Newman. <coughs> Excuse me. They added some key players, you know, that really helped us get to where we were with Pittsburgh, with the Pirates, getting to the World Series. Sure. And then, and then, and then during the, yeah, you mentioned Reardon, you know, what a great acquisition that was. And then, uh, and then you picked up Don Baylor down the stretch of the season um, in, in 87, I should say. Um, and also 87, it, we talked about Steve Carlton earlier. You also had Joe Negro in, I mean, obviously famously with the, uh, the nail file in the back pocket, but uh, so, you, you know, you had some interesting kind of fourth and fifth starters cycling through it at different points during you the know what, Rich, I think that really helped us was in spring training, 1987, where there, Tom Kelly, great manager, his coaching staff, I think the front office were looking for someone to be a leadoff hitter. Greg Agney could have been that, but they, I think they wanted him lower part of the lineup, Lombardozzi, same thing. So they made a trade for Dan Gladden. Right. Late in spring training. And when his, when he came over, if anybody has known Glenn Gladden, the long haired hippie type guy, you know, he just, he brought a lot of fire and he took over that leadoff spot, you know, and then you've got, you know, you got Puckett hitting up there, her back and, you know, Bernanser, they, they had, they had a lumber company. They really did. Yeah. And I think Dan Gladden was kind of the final straw that stirred the success of the twins in 1987. He helped, I think his attitude every day in and day out, the way he played, I think just uh, fed off everybody else. Yeah. Am I remembering this correctly? Did Kent Herbeck call him Wrench? Yeah. 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 And obviously Dan Gladden, you know, kind of famously four years later would score the winning run in game set, the only run in game seven in the one, nothing win. Greatest game, greatest game ever pitched Jack Morris against John Smoltz. What a great game that was. And to go 10 innings like Jack did, I don't think there will ever be a game seven again in baseball history, what Jack did. I agree. Yeah. And I, I love the fact, I mean, the story I've, I've heard different exact quotes used, but Tom Kelly approaches him in the dugout and says something along the lines of, I think I'm going to pull you. And Jack, Jack Morris basically says, get out of my face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something I'll, 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 I'll pull your head off your neck. If you take me out. Yeah. Right. Things like that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so, so 87 and, and so meanwhile, so the team wins the American league West, incredibly exciting. <laughs> you get to the postseason. Now Detroit comes in, they've won almost a hundred games, but you guys take care of business pretty quickly. You, you beat them four to one. Um, and you pick up two wins, uh, one at home, one on the road. Tell me about that series. Well, you know, Rich, that year in 87, yeah, we had a good ball club. We were gelling at the right time. Right. We only won 85 ball games. I think Detroit throughout the summer, they kicked our butt, really, throughout every game we played. They had a great ball club. Going into, you know, all you got to do is win the best of, of seven, you know, to get to the World Series at that time. So we were playing good baseball at that time. Frank Viola and I were pitching well. You know, Les Straker was our third starter. We didn't need, we didn't need, you know, five, six starters, right. Uh, you know, it was Frankie and I and Les Straker and let's hopefully, you know, go to the promised land. Yeah. And lo and behold, uh, the twins scored a lot of runs early for Frankie and I in game one and two went to Detroit. I believe we lost game three, one game four. And then I got the pitch and I started game five and uh, we ended up 
winning that ball game. I think like eight to four, something like that. Juan Berenger came in, Jeff Rudin closed it. And, uh, you know, now we're going to the World Series. And, and you came home from Detroit and you uh, come to the Metrodome and the place was just exploding, right? Tell me you about know, Rich, that. I think if you ask anybody on that ball club, all 25 guys, maybe the manager, coaches, front office people, what was the most exciting moment? Yeah, winning the series you know, against the Cardinals was great. But when we beat Detroit, we're on the plane flying from Detroit back to Minnesota at 10 o'clock. By the time we're getting in, it's 11 o'clock at night, 1030, whatever it was. And they asked us on the plane, you know, can, would you mind if we got bus to the Metrodome because they want to open it up to season ticket holders and they want to, you know, have a little ceremony, which we love. That's great. You know, we're champagne. We're having a great time. Sure. Buses over there. Well, when we went up 35 toward the dome, the Metrodome, all of a sudden you see people at 11 o'clock at night over the overpasses with signs, you know, congratulations, twins. We get closer to the dome. Of course, with the air and everything, you have to be parked uh, in right field. We get off the buses when those doors opened up. There were over 55,000 people at 11 o'clock at night wishing us good luck in the World Series. We didn't know if we were going to play the Cardinals or the Giants at that time. We didn't care. But that was a moment that I think we realized that the 10th player on that ball club, the Minnesota Twins, were the fans of Minnesota. They were yeah. incredible. Not yeah. only during the series, but also after we had the ticket parade and won. Unbelievable. Yeah. So if fans out there think that they don't mean anything, don't tell that to the Minnesota Twins in 87. Right. Yeah. I, I, I loved reading those stories. That was fantastic. And then, and then you do end up playing St. Louis, and it becomes one of those crazy series very similar to 91 where Minnesota wins two home games, go on the road and lose, lose three games in the middle of the week come home and take care of business that last weekend and you're the world series champs. Um, what was it like when Herbeck hits the, it's a tight game in game six, you're down three games to two. So you have to win Kerbeck hit or excuse me, Herbeck hits the grand slam. What was, mm -hmm. what was the bench like at that point? You know what, uh, even though we're down three games to two, uh, we knew that we we're going home. Uh, we knew that our 10th player would be there and we would raise rise to the occasion. And, uh, the guys did offensively. They did. They, you know, Herbeck and just everybody, Gaetti, Bernanski, you can go through the whole lineup. Lombardozzi had a great, you know, uh, World Series, Gagney. Um, so it was just a combination of everybody contributing. It wasn't one or two guys that we jumped on the back of, you know, like 91 is Kirby Puckett. You know what I mean? You know, that was the pitching staff. But in 87, I think it was a combination of Gaetti and Bernanski and everybody. Everybody contributed. Yeah. Jim Laudner, yep. Yeah, it seemed like everybody was coming up with timely hits. Top of the order, bottom of the order, meat of the order. Um, you know, I can speak from personal experience. When Herbeck hit the Grand Slam, I, I lost my mind because, like, you just felt it. Like, this was going to happen. Um, a lot of people told me you lost your mind long before that. <laughs> there is truth to that. There is definitely truth to that. Um and then, and then you, you wrap up your career in California, not far from where you grew up, right? Maybe 10, 15 minutes away from where you grew up. I grew up right there in Anaheim. I was always an Angel fan after they came in 1966 to uh, Orange County. So, yeah, it was nice to be able to finally pitch at home. Right. 
That's nice. And you know, I, I'm remiss. I forgot to ask you, what was it like playing for Tom Kelly, who had been a teammate in the seventies with the twins. And yeah. now, now you're playing for him and he's a young guy. I mean, he, you know, he was probably in his mid thirties or 36 or 37 or something like that. What was that like? You know what? Uh, he was a lot like Chuck Tanner. He let us play, you know, right. Tom managed a lot of these guys that came through the system like Viola and Herbeck and Gaetti. They, you know, he managed a lot of them. So I think when Ray Miller was let go in 1986, Tom Kelly was named the new manager. I think that sent a message, I think to all, everybody at that time is like, God, you know, they, they trusted TK, right. you know, if, if TK would tell you something, he, it was, it was a truth. He's not going to be one of these guys that would look you in the face and say, you're the best. And then turn around and say, boy, that guy stinks. You know what I mean? He's going to tell you the truth. So TK is a great man. He's, he's yeah. a great man. He's a great manager, but better. He's a better person. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. And there are not many men who can say that they've managed two world series teams. Um, you retire shortly after going into retirement, you become a broadcaster for the twins, which you do for the better part of 24, 25 years with Dick Bremer, right? Mm -hmm. Always entertaining to watch. There were many summers where I'd get the package here and be watching the twins there. Um, and, and obviously there was the long wait for the hall of fame. And the thing that struck me the most was that from, from eligibility to when you got in three pitchers got in, I, I think I've got that right. And they were all relief pitchers, Suter, Gossage, Eckersley. What was going on? I mean, how do you go 12 years and not having a starting pitcher, you know, enter the Hall of Fame? I mean, I, I think we can, you know, assume that the voters just didn't get it. But what was your take on that? To Writers Hall of Fame, you know, for the first 15 years. Now it's changed to 10 years, but it's a Writers Hall of Fame. Uh, what took me 14 years? You know, you look at my innings pitch, my strikeouts, my shutouts, my complete games, all that stuff. You know, it's sad to say they're Hall of Fame numbers. They just were not, I guess, appreciated by them. And yeah. I think in, I think what they waited because my last name was Blylevin, and I went in in 2011 that they wanted to make that comparison, you know. Right. And maybe they, maybe they counted, finally counted instead of two 87 wins, they counted my Little League wins and my high school wins. Maybe <laughs> they did that. I have no idea. Numbers yeah. don't lie. You know, the analytics today in the game, you know, they're, they're saying this guy can't hit a curveball. Well, yeah, if you hang it, I'll tell you what, I don't care what the analytics say. You hang a curveball, he's going to hit it. So right. it just took a long time. And I'm very proud that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the few members of, of a fraternity uh, for the Hall of Fame. I think there's just over 200 of us uh, that have had the honor of having a plaque uh, as a player, there's, of course, a lot of front office people and umpires and executives that are there. But uh, to be a player inducted, no matter, you know, if, if you go in the first time on the ballot or the last time or if you get inducted into like Ted Simmons did this year by the Veterans Committee, you're in a Hall of Fame. You're, you're in a very elite group. So it's, it's a great honor. Yeah. And do you, do you get back for the ceremonies? Every, year? every year, every year yeah. I will go back as long as God willing, you know, I can stand. Uh, uh, I, my wife, Gail and I will go back every year. It's an honor. I, I, plus I have to go back to make sure they have to take that plaque off the wall. Either. 
That's great. Um, so, so I have to I have to ask a couple of questions. First of all, this has been great. Thank you, thank you so much for taking the time with me. I have to go through a couple of questions that um, it. You don't have to give me one answer. You can name a few people. Um, who in, in your twenty two years in the bigs across two different leagues? Who was the toughest guy to get out? The one guy you thought, oh God, why do I? Have to I, face I get that asked a lot. I, my always my response was anybody with a bat. Okay. It, I mean, I looked at it that it didn't, you know, when I got ready for a game, I looked at the opposing lineup. And of course, you follow them. Back in the 70s, you had to follow them through the paper. Now you get to look videos on that lineup. But uh, I would know if I'm going to face the Yankees and Don Mattingly, I, I, which after my lap, after my previous start, I would prepare myself for my next start the next day. And say I pitch against Detroit, and now my next start in four or five days against the Yankees. I pick up the paper when I was younger. I look to see how what their lineup is. So those four or five days, I get a chance to see Don Mattingly. Okay, 0 for 3, 0 for 4. You know, next day, 2 for 4. Uh-oh, 3 for 4. Tells me he's starting to swing the bat pretty good. So I got to be a little careful with him. That's kind of our scouting back then sure high tight low and away don't walk them don't give me anything too good to hit you know that was standard right but uh you know there are certain guys ron kittle was one i give up a lot of home runs rich i gave up 51 year that'll never be broken right uh, that's a that's a joe dimaggio type of uh, record uh sure. you know i was eighth i think on the all-time home run list that's okay. You know, I won, I led the league in innings pitched. You know, I won 17 ball games. I gave up 96 home runs in two years and won 32 games and pitched right. you know, almost 600 innings. So what do you want? You know? right. <laughs> but, but I think Ron Kittle was the one that hit the most home runs off me. I drilled him a couple of times, to be honest with you. It didn't even phase him. It didn't right. even phase him. You know, so there are certain guys that, you know, just say, okay, you got my number. Okay. Wherever you're living, I'm helping pay for your mortgage. <laughs> That's great. Who who were some of the guys behind you? And I'm sure the answer is probably all of them. But who were the guys who you just knew were going to get the ball behind you? You know, defensively. You mentioned well, Orlando earlier. Yeah, my outfielders. Anybody play deep? Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, I was never one to you know look around and say you know you might want to move back, <laughs> which they already did anyway. I remember at Fenway Park one time I'm pitching a ball game and Dan Gladden's in left field and, and I could hear him talking, right? I mean, it's fit, the, the green monster is so close. And I looked out at him and he's, his back is against the wall. I said, Danny, you, you know, after between days, I said, you come in a little bit. He goes, nah, not with you pitching. I'm playing it back as far as I can. <laughs> but that was fun within the game. You know, you got to do that. But, uh, yeah. you know, anybody, you know, <clears throat> believe me, when I'm out on that mound and the guy makes an error behind you, he's, he's busting his tail in for you. I would never show up one of my teammates. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to make mistakes too. I'm going to hang a curveball, hang a fastball. And they're going to hit out, you know, never, 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 ever that I was, was I ever going to, uh, you know, look at my, one of my teammates and say, you know, why did you miss that ball? They're out there busting their butt as I am. That's sure. All. sure. Who were, um, who who were the we talked about Chuck Tanner and and um, and Tom Kelly, 
who were the managers? And, th and that might be the answer. Who were the managers that, you know, you enjoyed playing for the most, got the most out of you? Uh, probably more. Uh, boy, that's a good question. Because uh, I completed a lot of ball games. Anybody that would leave me alone out on a mound, you know, right. you're going to have, you're gonna, you know, in early on, Bill Rigney was known as Captain Hook. I didn't have a lot of complete games for him. But, uh, you know, I, I guess... Maybe, maybe Frank Quillacy with the Twins. Frank let me finish what I started, you know. Sure. Uh, even though you may lose two to one or one to nothing, you're still out there for the ninth inning. That was my ultimate goal. I wanted to outlast the opposing pitcher, you know, and that, that's the way I looked at every start. I wanted to complete that game. They always say, you want to take a shower with the boys, huh? I said, yeah, but, you know, not quite that way. Right. I want to be there, you know, when, when that final – 20, you know, seventh out was made. Uh, I want to be out there, you know, giving high, high fives. So, yeah. And you, you, you finished, tell me if I've got this right, 242 games, which yeah. I think there's only probably 10 guys in the last 60 years who've pitched who were, you know, there or better. So, well, you know, some, Rich, somebody games. told me the other day in 1984 or five, I threw 293 innings. Uh, since that time, nobody's thrown that many innings. Uh, my complete games, I think I had a, during that time was like 24 complete games in a season. Nobody's come close to that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I pitched in the era that I did. You yeah. know, financially, it's different. You know, you're not making the money back then. Sure. When you make $10,000 in 1970, you know, to more, you know, more minimum is now. I just hope that the players today, and I, I did this the other day, I was talking to somebody, appreciate what the guys in the 70s and early 80s and even in late 80s went through all the strikes and the lockouts to get them where they are today as far as their salary structure and the condition of the game today. I don't like the game today, to be honest with you. <clears throat> Too much analytics. I don't like the shifts. Uh, if I'm a pitching on the mound right now, Rich, and I got a good sinker down and away, which I had later in my career because my fastball wasn't as good anymore. I had to move the ball a little bit. If I got a runner at first base and I'm thinking, if I throw this left-hander a good sinker, he's going to hit that ball toward third base. But I turn around and my third baseman's playing short. My shortstop's playing out in center field. My second baseman's, you know, out in right field. I go, well, how do I, now I got to change my whole philosophy on pitching. I got to pitch him more in and, that's where danger zone is to me. If right. you make a mistake in, you know, these big guys are stronger and bigger and stronger than we were. They're going to hit the crap out of the ball. Kind of what Houston did last night to a field. If you watch the ball game, you know, he should have gone more away off speed stuff. He challenged them. where at their, where Houston's at their best, something middle end. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I mean, I, I can only imagine that a, a man who threw uh, 60 shutouts and 240 plus complete games, watching these four hour games now where there's, you know, kind of seven pitching changes must drive you crazy. Uh, yeah, you know, you want to be aggressive in the strike zone. I, it just seemed, you know, even all the years that I broadcast, I think over the last five to six years, you see guys getting 0-2, the next thing is 3-2. They're just not trusting their stuff. You know, they're averaging 20, 25 pitches an inning. Well, with the pitch count, which we never had, you know, the hitters used to let us know when we were done. It wasn't a pitch count. 
uh, you know, that all of a sudden at 100 pitches, and if you have 20 pitches an inning, guess what? You're going five innings. Right. Uh, what it gets me today is fans, maybe they're not all there because they're giving these pitchers a standing ovation if he pitches five innings. Yeah. You know, and pitchers are saying, I did my job. No, your job's to go to work from eight to five, not eight to one. You know, right. I want that job from eight to one. I never looked at it that way. So it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember the 87 team, the third starter was Les Straker most of the year. Mm -hmm. And I can remember announcers talking about it that, uh, you know, he, there was obviously a drop off from, from you and, and Frank Viola. And they said, you know, if we can get six good innings out of Les, you know, then we'll yep. hand it over to the bullpen. And at the right. time, that almost seemed like, wow, that's, you know, that's how they're, you know, kind of working with this guy. Now that's like you just said, like, that's the norm. Give me six yeah. good innings. Oh my God, but you, know, you, but you do have your workhorses, you know, that are still out there, even though they may not have the complete games. You know, you look at the Verlanders, hopefully they'll come back. The the Coles, you know, they have those guys that still Scherzer, you know, sure. guys like that, that that are still have that I want to go deep into the ball game. So, you know, the game's not going to change that way. It's just I think it's more the mental part in the minor leagues. They condition these guys to go five or six innings. Right. But we can right. get that's another whole story right there. I, I, I'm with the twins in spring training for three weeks at the beginning of spring training, and I work with the pitchers. And to be honest with you, I don't like what I see as far as the way they're teaching them nothing but velocity. This what what happens to the pitcher? What happens to a Frank Viola or or Brad Ratke or Johan Santana by hitting their spots? You know, now it's just how hard you can throw. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. game is I don't game like it. Changed. Yeah. Game has changed a lot. Um, and you obviously known in addition to, you know, all the, uh, all that you accomplished on the field, also known as a bit of a prankster in the locker room and, and thereabouts. Oh, uh, man, brother, I have a twin brother. <laughs> Legendary with the hot foot. So I'm curious who the name Mickey Hatcher comes to mind in your twins years, but who, who were some of the other guys who could, you know, kind of compete with you, maybe not match you, but compete with you as a prankster. Uh, Rick Sucklick was one of those guys, Mickey okay. Hatcher. I remember spring training in 1970 before he, no, 1980. We're Orlando. I'm trying to remember the year 1986 because he was not part of our 80 might've been 87 St. Patrick's day. Mickey okay. Hatcher decides to paint himself green, okay, for St. Patrick's Day. So we're all laughing, and, and all of a sudden, Mickey starts to almost like pass out. And I go, Mickey, where'd you get that paint? He went over there, and he had enamel paint on him. So it clothed all his pores on his hand, on his God. neck, face. We almost lost Mickey. Oh, my God. I got hold of Dick Martin. I said, Dick, get over here. They rubbed him down in alcohol trying to get this enamel paint off of him. But that was Mickey Hatcher. I mean, what a character. I love oh, the guy. He's still part of our fantasy camp for the twins that we have here every January. Uh, we got some great characters on that ball club. But Ken Herbeck, you know, Gary Gaetti, just guys that just came to the ballpark, not only to try to win a ball game, but just get along with everybody. Kirby Puckett, you know, he walks into a clubhouse and it's just, you know, you don't know what the hell is going to happen, but yeah. just a lot of great guys throughout the year, you know, 
God, in Pittsburgh, we have John Milner. Uh, we can tell some stories about him, you know, Ed Ott, Phil Garner, just, just guys that came to the ballpark, not only wanting to win a ball game, but also, you know, having fun with their teammates. Yeah. 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 That's all. Burp Lalevin, it has been great hanging out and talking with you. I could do this all day. I love talking about you know, these different teams over the years. Thank you very much for coming on Chasing Hardware. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, We'll uh, look forward to talking to you going forward. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware and my guest, Hall of Famer, Burt Blylevin. I'm Rich Lamella, signing off. But first, the Michael Stanley Band brought us in and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Look forward to speaking next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Come on. Life is like Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.